0: Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you do give us blessed assurance. We know that you are not only our Savior, but our King. Lord, and you watch over us, and you protect us, and you care for us out of your deep, deep love for us. Lord, this morning, as we go into the message and we continue our study through the book of Esther, Lord, I pray that you would remind us continually of your faithfulness and your ability to take care of us. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. What kind of images does the word promise conjure up in your head? For some, a promise can be a positive thing. There is security knowing that because he said he'd be home for dinner, you can expect to hear the door crack open at 5 30, just like every other night. Or maybe it's the way you feel after a workout because you promised yourself you'd turn around your unhealthy lifestyle. But for others, the word can be a negative thing, like hearing strike three and heading back to the bench in disappointment. Not because you struck out, but because of that empty seat in the bleachers. Maybe it's a tan line around her finger that is now visible, because the precious metal that was supposed to symbolize everlasting love and faithfulness No longer means anything. Promises can elicit all kinds of emotion in us, often painful when the promises are left broken, but joyful when they are kept. One of the cool things about being a Christian is the fact that when God makes a promise, we can have confidence that He will stick to it. And one of the clearest promises that God made in all of Scripture is a promise that He made to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, when God promised to protect Abraham's descendants, who later became the nation of Israel, also known as the Jews. Today we are continuing a sermon series through the book of Esther, which takes place during a time when the nation of Israel is threatened with extinction. Yet God worked through everyday situations to bring salvation to his chosen people in this fascinating book of the Old Testament. Here's what's happened in the story so far. The events in the book of Esther took place nearly 2,500 years ago in the Persian Empire. Early in the book of Esther, King Xerxes was hosting an extravagant banquet for his royal officials. When they're all drunk, the king thought it would be a really good idea to bring his wife out, the queen, and parade her before all the officials and showing off her beauty. Needless to say, she didn't really like that idea, and she said, no, I'm not coming. In his anger, the king banished her from his presence and removed her from her queen, from being the queen. The king then started the process of finding a new queen, using a format very much like The Bachelor. Beautiful young women were gathered from throughout the empire, and each of them got to spend one night with the king in order to convince him to choose her, As the new queen, the king chose a Jewish woman named Esther, though he did not know that she was a Jew. Several years passed until a man named Haman was offended by a Jewish man who happened to be Esther's cousin. And Haman blew the whole thing out of proportion. He took his anger out on this one Jewish man by convincing the king to issue a decree that all the Jews throughout the Persian Empire should be annihilated. Esther's cousin Mordecai then convinced Esther that he was the only person, that she was the only person who had a chance of saving the Jews. He told her, who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. In what became the defining moment of her life, she chose to cast aside her personal safety and comfort and took action by going before the king and inviting him and Haman to a banquet, which was a cunning way to get the king to grant her request to save the Jews by stoking the king's ego and avoiding a direct conflict with Haman. But at this banquet, Esther did not reveal her identity or her request. Instead, she invited Haman and the king to a banquet the next day. Haman left that first banquet with spirits high until he left the, uh, the palace and saw Mordecai again not respecting him. He went home so angry that he decided not to wait until the massacre of the Jewish people for Mordecai to die. But instead, he erected a 75-foot pole for Mordecai to be impaled upon the next day. At this point in the book of Esther, Things are looking pretty bleak. And they're about as bad as they can get for God's chosen people living in the Persian Empire. They are in exile. They have been marked for extermination. And the person who is leading the front to do something about this has been scheduled to be executed the next day. But to quote the amazing movie, The Dark Knight, Harvey Dent says, Night is darkest before the dawn, but I promise you, dawn is coming. Let's take a look at verse 6 and see how this story turns around. We're in Esther chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 9, if you want to turn in there in your Bibles. It says, That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate Xerxes. "'What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this?' the king asked. "'Nothing has been done for him,' his attendants answered. The king said, "'Who is in the court?' Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace." to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor? Have him bring a royal robe the king has worn himself and a horse that the king has ridden, one with the royal crest placed on his head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. So in this passage, it starts off with the words, that night. The author of Esther is setting the timing of this chapter. It happens on the very evening of Esther's first banquet, and the evening of the day when Haman erected the 75-foot pole to impale Mordecai on. And we're told that the king just can't sleep. We don't really know why the king was able to wasn't able to sleep, just that he wasn't able to. Perhaps his mind was on Esther's request. Or wouldn't it be ironic if the noise of the pole being set up kept the king awake at night? Just a thought. For someone like the king of Persia, though, there was all kinds of entertainment that the king could have chosen to indulge in. He could have had some tunes played live for him. He could have brought in a jester to do some jokes and some tricks and make him laugh. Or he could have brought in some women to entertain himself. But instead, he has this boring book of chronicles brought in to have read to him. I mean, perhaps he delighted to hear in his exploits, but most likely he was hoping that the slow droning of those boring events would lull him back to sleep. But during the reading... There was one particular event from five years ago that caught Xerxes' attention. Someone had saved his life. This event was actually recorded in Esther chapter 2, verses 21 and 23, where Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate and discovered a plot from two of the king's officials. Their names were Bigthana and Teresh. Now, I don't know if there are any expecting mothers here. Well, I know there's one. But if there's any other, I'm not sure if Big Thana or Teresh are at the top of your list of names. I wouldn't recommend it. But these were the names of these two guys who had conspired to assassinate Xerxes. But when Mordecai found out about it, he told the king, and Big Thana and Teresh were impaled. And the event was recorded, but we're told that nothing was done to reward Mordecai at the time. So during this late night reading of the Chronicles, the king hears this and it catches his attention, so much so that he asks, was anything done to honor Mordecai? You see, Persian kings were known for lavishly rewarding those who had saved their lives and had been faithful to them. There were at least two reasons for this. First, it encouraged people to save the king's life in the future. Knowing there is reward often causes people to keep their eyes peeled for whatever earns them reward. A few months ago, there was an Amber Alert that came off on our cell phone um, about a kid that had been taken, I think by a relative, that wasn't you know, supposed to have that kid. And so there was an Amber Alert that came on my cell phone um, you know, with a license plate. And I remember I had a really long place to drive that day. I was going to be on the road for a few hours. And so I was like checking every license plate, you know, to see if I could, you know, find that vehicle. It's amazing like when you get other people to be looking out for something, how people join together and do that. And that's what the king was looking to do by offering reward. It also made it difficult for conspiracies to gain numbers because you had to be absolutely sure that the people you were letting in on your plans to assassinate the king were 100% on board, and that they weren't going to turn you in for that big reward that the king lavished upon you. So when Xerxes heard that nothing had been done for Mordecai, he must have been mortified. I mean, what was encouraging not only Mordecai, but the rest of the officials to uncover assassination attempts the next time, the king's life was in danger. So then he asks his officials who are reading this thing, who is in the court? What he's really asking is, are there any of my advisors here in the court? Which I think seems like kind of an odd question to ask since this is you know, the middle of the night and all his advisors should have been in bed. But it gives us two insights as to how this king operates. First, he wants to take care of this immediately. He is not okay with the injustice of Mordecai not being rewarded and continuing to be neglected. Again, he wants people to be looking out for his back. And secondly, in typical Xerxes fashion, as we see throughout this book, he always wants advice and doesn't seem to like making decisions on his own. So he wants an advisor to help him, and as luck would have it, well, probably more like divine providence, Haman, his most trusted advisor, just happens to be in the outer courtroom, or the outer court. Again, it seems interesting that Haman would be there, considering that it's the middle of the night. Um, But because of what is going on in Haman's life from chapter 5, it kind of makes sense. He was just invited to an exquisite banquet with just him and the queen. Chapter five, verse nine says that he left the banquet happy and high spirits. And as he is walking out, all the people around him are bowing down before him because of a, degree, a decree that the king gave in th- chapter three, verse two, that all the royal officials were to bow down before him. But there is just this one man who refuses. To bow down and give him honor and respect. Mordecai. The effect that Mordecai's defiance had on Haman is profound. It says that he is filled with rage. He is so consumed with hatred that he goes home and he gathers all his friends and family. And he starts bragging to them about all his wealth and his position but with the king. But he says, I have all these great things going for me in my life. I'm better than everyone else except for maybe the king. But I can't be happy because this Mordecai, he will not bow down to me. So his wife, Zeresh, also not a recommended name, <laughs> advises him to construct this 75-foot pole to impale Mordecai on. And says, hey, you should go to the king in the morning and ask his permission to impale Mordecai. In other words, his wife's advice don't wait for the date when all the Jews are to be killed. Take care of Mordecai now. And this idea pleased Haman, and he goes immediately to set the pole up. So we see Haman is kind of on this roller coaster of emotions where he is excited to get rid of his arch enemy that he can't sleep. So we go super early to the courtyard to wait for the king to get up. So that first thing that the king gives his attention to is his request. So we have these two men sitting here who both have Mordecai on their minds. Although for completely different reasons. When the king says in verse 5, bring him in. Haman enters the king's chambers and is immediately asked, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And Haman, who as we see throughout the book of Esther, is a man that's so filled with pride and arrogance, he thinks that he's the only person in the world that the king would want to honor. So he comes up with a plan that would stoke his own ego and increase the sphere of people who hold him in high regard and honor him. Since he already has the king's honor and all the nobles have to bow down to him, he suggests a parade of sorts for the man the king delights to honor. And this parade has five key elements. First of all, the man the king delights to honor gets to wear a royal robe, one that the king himself has worn. Secondly, this man gets to ride a horse that the king himself has ridden with the big royal crest on the horse's head. Thirdly, one of the king's most noble princes gets to lead this horse. Fourthly, it's led through the city streets. And finally, there's a proclamation by this most trusted prince saying, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. All of these elements are about showing in a very public way that this person riding this horse, being led by this prince, wearing the king's robe, is in the favor of the king. He ha- this man has what everyone wants. It's pretty obvious from this story that the only thing that Haman cares about is what other people think about him. He gets his identity from the opinion of others. And his main goal in life is to be placed upon a pedestal where everyone else has to look up to him. Little does he know that this drive for recognition is about to become his most humbling moment. The author highlights Haman's impending humiliation through a theme of the book of Esther, of hidden identities. There are three key Identities that are hidden in the book of Esther. There's Esther herself, who hides the fact that she is Jewish. There is Haman, who hides the identity of the people that he wants to exterminate. He never tells Xerxes. And at this point, Xerxes has, still has no clue that it's the Jewish people that are um, marked to be um, killed on the day of Purim. And thirdly, here in this chapter, the king never reveals the identity of the man he delights to honor. And the cool thing is the revealing of all three of these identities are key moments in the book of Esther. The revealing of the identity of the man that delights to honor leads to a turning point in the entire book of Esther. Let's take a look at verses 10 through 14 and see how that plays out. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. And he told Zarish his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife, Zarish said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin... You cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet that Esther had prepared. The king orders Haman to carry out his own plan for the man the king delights to honor on Haman's arch rival, Mordecai. The irony of this is that Haman actually came before the king to request permission to elevate Mordecai in the public eye. And the king totally granted his request, just in the exact opposite way that Haman had hoped for. I love how the author doesn't tell us Haman's reaction to the king's command. He leaves it up to our imagination and simply tells us that Haman went out and did as the king commanded Wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall and watch Haman have to approach Mordecai and explain to him all that's about to occur? That would have been amazing. And it's interesting to see Mordecai's reaction after this parade has taken place. In verse 12, it simply says, Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's king's gate. After all this recognition... Haman just kind of goes, I mean, Mordecai just kind of goes, eh. And he goes life, back to life as usual. I think there are two reasons for this. The f- first thing is that he knows that his people, the Jews, have still been sentenced to death. And being able to trot around on a horseback for a few hours doesn't change any of that. And this purpose in life that he is pursuing to save the his people still needs to be taken care of. And secondly, I don't think Mordecai is really all that interested in recognition. At least not the way Haman is. He knows that this day of honor doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things if everyone that he loves, including himself and his cousin Esther, are going to be dead soon. Haman, however, has a much different reaction. He goes straight home with his head covered in grief. The man who thrives on people seeing him and bowing before him is now too ashamed to even show his face. Once again, he gathers his family and his friends together and tells them what happened. Haman's wife sees this as a bad omen for Haman, believing that this event will be the first domino in a series that will lead to Haman's ruin. She seems like a really nice, uplifting woman, doesn't she? Her reason for believing this, as given in the passage, is because Mordecai is of Jewish origin, which seems kind of interesting, because I don't think this reason had very much to do with the Jewish people at all. Because, I mean, Mordecai, you know, is about to to die, along with the rest of the Jewish people, in in a law that has already been passed, that they're all going to die, So how could this people who are about to die do anything to stop Haman? But I don't think that's what Zeresh is getting at. She realizes that the events of this day were so out of the ordinary and so focused on flipping the situation so that Mordecai is elevated and Haman is brought low that really the only explanation is that Haman's God is orchestrating this whole situation to redeem his people. The divine providence in this passage is so apparent that even the the pagan family of Haman can see it. And they understood it as leading to Haman's doom. Met with the realization that he is fighting against the Almighty God, Haman has no time to repent or react as he is... Whist away immediately to the banquet Esther has prepared. Well, she will confront Haman and the king with the awful truth of Haman's plan and her identity in the climax of the book of Esther, but that's next week. I want to take a few moments to look at two observations to show God's hand in the book of Esther, specifically through this chapter. First, we want to see that God is the hero. Of this story. We've been talking about this throughout the series, and it's a very interesting book of the Bible because Esther is the only book of the Bible where God is not explicitly mentioned. Yet his hand is clearly seen throughout as he orchestrates the salvation of his people from destruction, and this chapter is the clearest example of that in the whole book of Esther. And there's a term that's, that's called providential sovereignty, which refers to God working through everyday circumstances to bring about his purpose without a verbal command or a miracle. And there, in this chapter that we just went through, there are just far too many things that fall into place for it to be mere coincidence in anything other than divine providence. First, we see that Mordecai himself was not honored immediately. But instead, five years passed before he was honored. Secondly, that very night, the king couldn't sleep. Thirdly, he chose to have the book of the Chronicles read rather than some other, maybe more fun forms of entertainment. They just happened to read the part. I mean, this is over five years of recorded events, and they chose to read some of the events about when Mordecai saved the king's life? How about the fact that that stuck out to the king and he noticed it? And even enough to ask about it. How about Haman being up at the same time, unable to sleep himself because of the plan to kill Mordecai that very day? How about the king hiding the identity of who he wanted to honor? And then this all happening between the two banquets that Esther had planned, to request the salvation of the Jewish people. This whole thing was setting up Esther's plan to be taken out. And it's a further step in the king granting her request. All these factor into the story being a place where this story just seems utterly hopeless for God's people. But they not only are saved from death, but it's turned around and they become prominent in the kingdom of Persia. One of the cool elements of the story of Esther is that even though this turning point happens here in the book of or the in chapter 6 it's not the climax of the book as I mentioned a few minutes ago the climax of the book really happens in chapter 7 where the heroine of the story confronts and defeats the villains I mean that's how most stories go don't they I mean the best movies are when like everything just seems to be falling apart for the good side. It seems so hopeless until the hero defeats the villain, and then things turn around, and it goes well. Usually the turning point comes after, immediately after the climax of the story. But that's not, what, not how it happens in the book of Esther. And I think that if we, and if we look in this chapter, it's interesting... Because the good guys in this story, Esther and Mordecai, do absolutely nothing in this chapter. They're mentioned in passing, but they themselves do nothing actively. I think this clearly highlights the fact that God is the true hero of the book of Esther. Esther and Mordecai definitely play important roles, and they model trusting in God in dark times, but ultimately, It is God who turned around things for the Jewish people. Second observation. When God saves his people, he works through great reversals. In other words, he takes the worst situations and turns them into something far greater than we could possibly imagine. In this story, Haman went before the king with a wicked plan to impale Mordecai on a stake. And God doesn't just stop Mordecai's plans. Instead, he completely turns it around and makes it benefit Mordecai and bring Haman down. It's kind of like a pick six in football. A pick six is when a quarterback throws an interception, a.k.a. a pick. And the defensive player who catches the ball returns it all the way into the end zone and scores six points for the defending team. So when this happens, the defense not only stops the offense, they turn it into points for themselves. And that's the kind of great reversal of fortunes that God is in the business of doing. I would even say it's His trademark move. The Bible is full of stories of God taking the worst situations and turning them into something magnificent I want to highlight one of those stories for you today. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, which reads, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. According to this passage, every single one of us were enemies of God because of our sin. And God cannot tolerate our sin because of his holiness. God told us in Genesis chapter 3, actually Genesis chapter 2, that the penalty for our sin is death, eternal separation from God. And we have no hope of doing anything about that. Yet we serve a God of great reversals. And he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life and die on the cross to pay that penalty for our sins in our place. And not only did Jesus die, and he was placed in a tomb, and the disciples felt like it was entirely hopeless because their Savior was dead in the grave. God pulled another great reversal and raised him from the dead so that you and I could have new life. Friends, we live in a life that is saturated with brokenness and trials and suffering. But God promises to use all of that for our good, and reverse those challenges that we face and turn them into good things for us. Let's back up a few verses in Romans 5 and read verses 1 through 5. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the glory of God. Check this part out. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. According to this passage, God uses our suffering the trials and the challenges that we face, those obstacles that lie before us. He uses those things to give us perseverance, character, and hope. God uses those things to make us holy like he is. And when we have hope, God's love is poured out through us, through the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit walking there with us, through those trials and challenges. How great of a promise is that? That no matter what we face in this life, God is bigger and we can cling to the faith and hope that is offered to us through the cross, knowing that God uses the trials of life to draw us to himself and develop character and perseverance. And all of this is possible because of two very important characteristics of who God is. First, he's a personal God. He cares about the things that we're going through. He loves us and has promised to work it all out for our good. Secondly, he's an all-powerful God who's able to do something about the things that we're going through. He's able to do the things that he says he's going to do. One of my favorite bands, Skillet, is coming out with a new album this coming Friday. And they've already released one of their songs. It's called Stars, and it talks about how we are loved by a God who is not only capable of holding the stars, but also personal enough to hold on to our hearts through the storms. We're going to listen to this song now, and I want to encourage you as you listen to it to think of an obstacle that you're facing this week and make a choice to trust God more deeply with that situation. Father, God, we're so thankful that you're a big God, that you not only hold the stars in place, you created each one of us in this room. Lord, we know that you love us. You proved that by sending your son to die on the cross for our sins so that we could have a relationship with you. Lord, we know that in the book of Esther, you took care of your people when they were facing certain doom. And we can have confidence that you will take care of us through the storms of life that we're facing today. Lord, I pray that you would help each and every one of us to trust you. And that we would lift our hearts to you and trust that you will take care of us in the difficult times in life. And that we will continue to follow you as our God. Amen.